In his book, What Do They Hear?, biblical scholar Mark Allen, Allen Powell discusses social location and how it has a tremendous impact on how we hear and understand the stories of the Bible. So social location are things like race, gender, nationality, economic class, political affiliation, and so on. Each one of us has social location, or more accurately, we all have social locations. So, for example, I am not only a male reader of the Bible, I am also middle class, American, a father, and a husband. All of those things have an impact on how I understand any given story. And some of those things have a greater impact than others. And that's true even when we come to famous stories like the one we just read. That our scripture lesson for today is another one of Jesus' most famous parables. There were no titles when Jesus originally told these stories, but down throughout time we have given them titles, and so we've called this one the parable of the prodigal son. And that title alone indicates that we are reading it from a social location, and we'll talk more about that in just a second. So Mark Allen Powell devised an experiment using this parable to indicate how our social location impacts how we hear and understand these stories. So here in the United States, teaching in a seminary, Powell had 12 students read the story carefully and then retell it to a partner. In each of their retellings, not one student mentions the famine in the parable. Did you notice the famine in the parable? I didn't the first time that I read it. But it's right there in the story that after the younger son used up his resources, a severe food shortage arose in that country. The story that Jesus tells is about a child who runs off to a far country, runs out of resources, and then is left in great need when a famine arises. He works in the fields feeding the pigs, an especially demeaning task in that culture. He's hungry and starving, and no one gives him any food. So Powell was struck by how none of these seminary students, students who are taught how to read texts carefully, how none of them even mentioned the famine in their retelling of the story. It was almost an ancillary detail to them. And so Powell then expanded his study and gathered together a hundred diverse Americans and did the, the same exercise. Only six of the 100 surveyed Americans included the famine in their retelling of the parable. So Powell then expanded it even further. He was out on sabbatical in Eastern Europe, and he took a poll of diverse respondents in St. Petersburg, Russia. He was only able to gather 50 people. 42 of them mentioned the famine. 6% of, of the Americans mentioned it, and 84% of Russians in St. Petersburg mentioned the famine. Why? Social location. In 1941, during the Second World War, the German army laid siege to St. Petersburg in what was essentially a 900-day famine. 670,000 people died of starvation and exposure, or about a quarter of the city's population. So when Powell conducted his survey in the early 2000s, there were still people who lived in that city who were survivors of that famine, and still others who live there today who are descendants of survivors from that famine. There's a collective memory of that event that influences the culture of St. Petersburg. What Powell says is that 
Even modern social issues like care for the elderly or socialized medicine are often discussed through the lens of a really important question, but what if there isn't enough food? To make it even more interesting, only about a third of the Russian readers made mention of the younger son squandering his inheritance. So what, they said. The fact that he lost his inheritance makes his situation even worse. When asked if the younger son did anything wrong, the, Russians, the Russian readers said, well, of course he did. But it wasn't how he was frivolous with his money. It was the fact that he left his father's house at all. It was the fact that he thought he could make it on his own away from the rest of his family. Now, contrast that with how we typically read this story as American. what, Americans. What details typically stick out to us? That we tend to emphasize that the younger son's wrongdoing was the fact that he lacked personal responsibility and financial, and he was financially frivolous. Prodigal means wasteful. So the fact that we've named this story the parable of the prodigal son indicates the social location from which we read it from. Think about all of the conversations that have happened over the last several years about how we use our tax dollars. A lot of talking points around personal responsibility and financial planning. That if someone is poor, they need to get rid of the cable, sell the Xbox. You've heard those arguments, I'm sure, before. Then, to make it even more interesting, Powell found in his survey of diverse Americans that the, for the majority of them, the climax of the story, the high point of the story, was when the son decided he couldn't live in the pig pen anymore. He decides to change his situation. No one's going to change it for him, so he gets up and goes back to his father's house. For the Russian readers, the climax of the story is when the father recovers his lost son. Powell also went to Tanzania in eastern Africa, and he wasn't able to conduct the same experiment, so he uh, had to modify it. And he read that story for 50 seminary students and asked them this question. Why did the young man end up living among the pigs? And 80% of the students said, because no one gave him anything to eat. And so Powell pressed the matter further. And he said, well, why would anyone give him anything to eat? He wasted his inheritance. And the students said, that's actually a really calloused response. The parable is less about personal responsibility and more about society. But the far country is a society without honor, a society that will let a stranger go hungry. Our social location impacts how we hear stories. We all read from a particular social location. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about Jesus' parables, is that there are multiple vantage points and multiple entryways into his stories that give us different understandings. I once heard the Bible compared to a diamond, and I think it's true of Jesus' parables as well, that as you turn the diamond, the light reflects through differently. From our social location as Christians, who have heard this story over and over again, it is an allegory for God's grace. We tend to focus on this younger son, who after wasting his inheritance, decides to run back to his father and plead his case. He starts rehearsing his lines. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as one of your hired servants. 
And as he walks that long road back from the far country, he's rehearsing that line over and over again, Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And as he's bumbling and stumbling over that line over and over again, and just with it, when he's within sight of his father's estate, he's still trying to get that speech just right. And he looks up and he sees his father is already running towards him, arms outstretched. And in that culture, it was indecent for a dignified man to run. And yet, here is this father, this allegory for God, making a fool of himself for the son who asked for his inheritance early, which is really him wishing that he was dead. His father will hear none of this talk about worthiness and unworthiness. He doesn't even let him speak a word about being a hired hand. He says, let's throw a party. You're back home. I'm glad that you're home. Let's not just throw any party. Let's throw an extravagant one. Let's get the neighbors called on us. We're having so much fun. What a powerful story about God's grace. Before any one of us could make a decision to follow God, God was already running towards us. That before any one of us could say to God, you are my God, God said to us, you are my people. That God's grace is always outstretched arms ready to welcome us home. And the light shines through the story in stunning brilliance when we read it in this way. But I want to turn the diamond just a little bit this morning and take the focus exclusively off the younger son. Because you know what I notice from my social location? The older brother, who is close to his father this whole time, the older brother who heard his younger brother ask for his inheritance and resented him greatly for it, the older brother who worked diligently in his father's fields, that while dad was off watching at the estate entrance waiting for the, the younger brother to come home, the older brother was managing everything else. That while his father grieved the loss of the younger brother, the older brother had to keep it all together. My heart really goes out to this oldest brother. And that should tell you something about my social location. That I am the oldest of four siblings. There are my two sisters and my brother. Now, don't get me wrong, there were some real advantages to being the oldest. As the oldest, there were way more photos of me than there were of my three younger siblings. Everything I had as a kid was brand new, whereas my siblings got a lot of hand-me-downs. There's a picture of me in my parents' house where I'm just surrounded on all sides by stuffed animals, and they were all brand new for me, but when I was done with them, my siblings got them. When I would wrestle my brother, who's six and a half years younger than me, I would always win. That is, until he went into high school and he got into weightlifting and wrestling. I came home from college one day and I pushed him like I used to do. He didn't move an inch. I said, I'm sorry, sir, and I never pushed him again. I had shotgun for life in the car. Even as an adult, I still get shotgun. And when my parents were out for the evening, I was the one in charge, something that I enjoyed way too much sometimes. <laughs> we oldest children certainly had advantages. But despite those advantages, we are also really good at playing the role of persecuted martyr. That we oldest children tend to be rule followers. We aim to please. We do what's expected of us. We're responsible. We're supposed to be examples for our younger siblings. And of course, I'm speaking in broad generalities. 
It helps us to gain sort of a portrait of this oldest son. And we oldest children, I think, are very much concerned with what's right and fair and what's not. We're concerned about with what our younger siblings got away with versus what we got away with. I have a really exhaustive list of all the things that were expected of me but were not expected of my sisters and my brother. I have a record of all the chores I had to do, but my, young, my brother, who's the youngest, didn't have to do. And because we are such good record keepers of right and wrong, because we are so keenly aware of the slightest imbalance in the scales of familial justice, we easily become resentful. Resentful, bitter, and angry at the fact that we feel like we were cheated. Resentful of the fact that we always did the right thing, while perhaps our siblings felt the freedom to forge their own paths. See, I'm not just the older brother in the sense of my familial birth order. I'm the older brother in the sense of my own faith journey as well. I've gone through my own transformations about the things I believe about Jesus and the Christian faith in general. But I have always attended church. I've always been active in the church. When I was here in November doing my candidating for you all, I told you that I felt called to ministry when I was 14 years old. If the Father is a metaphorical representation for God, then I have always been close by the Father. I have always been seeking to do the right thing. And so, when this younger brother comes back, having wasted all of his money, it's unfair how the older brother has been working this whole time, and the father has been waiting and watching for this younger brother to return. It's unfair that the older brother has been responsible, and yet this irresponsible son gets a a ring for his finger, a fine robe, and a party thrown for him. Where's my fattened calf? One of the most startling realizations of this whole story, I think, is the fact that this older brother has been close by his father the whole time, and yet there's a great distance between them. In all of his dutiful obedience, his diligent responsibility, he has actually been living in his own far country. He has been in a far country of his own resentment, his own anger, and his own deep-seated feelings of unworthiness even in those fields right outside of his father's house. He has been further from his father than the younger son ever was. He, like the younger brother, has been mumbling and stumbling and bumbling over his own lines about why his father should accept him and love him. All of these years I've been working and never once have I disobeyed you. He thinks that that is what makes him acceptable and loved by his father. He thinks that his father loves him because of how hard he works and how he's always done what's expected of him. But perhaps, too, the father has been saying to him all along, all I have is already yours. You don't have to prove your worth to me. My love for you is unconditional just as my love is for your younger brother. The older brother needs to make his own journey from his own far country, that far country of resentment, anger, and diligent responsibility. And perhaps as he journeyed, he would look up and see that his father was running towards him as well, ready to embrace him as loved and treasured. 
If he did that, perhaps his father would interrupt his own mumbling and bumbling his speech about why he deserved to be accepted and instead hear his father say to him, everything I have is already yours. It's already yours, not because of anything you've done, not because of how responsible you are. I love you because you are my child. Don't stand out here in the cold in resentment because I've welcomed your brother back. Come join the party because you too are deeply loved. The father's embrace is big enough for both of his sons. It's big enough for the one who wandered off and found himself far away. It's big enough for the one who stayed close by and yet still found himself far away. Both of these sons are are deeply loved and highly treasured by their father despite the wrong that they've done. He loves them even with all the good that they have done. He loves them simply because they are his children. God's gracious embrace calls us loved and beloved simply because we exist. Before any wrong we have done, despite any wrong we might do, before any good we have done and before any good we might do, God has already been running towards each one of us ready to welcome us home. Whatever social location you hear this parable from, know that God loves you. Whether you are the younger brother, God loves you. Whether you are the older brother, God loves you as well. All of the goodness of God, it already belongs to us, not because of anything we have done, but because God's grace has been poured into our lives in overflowing measure. And that is the scandal of the gospel. There is nothing we can do to make God love us less. And there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. You and I are already and always the beloved children of God. Trust the good news and let us go and join in the great joy and celebration of God's grace. Thanks be to God. Amen.